special guest coming to our show to talk about the history of Real Kill Kingdom. Uh, not many people have heard of Real Kill, let alone Real Kill Kingdom. So um, we have Rob. Uh, welcome, Rob. Hi, having me. Um, so I've discovered you on Twitter um, because you know history of Okinawa is one of the things that always fascinate me. Um, and I, but personally, I don't have much background, so it's great to find such an expert on the history of Okinawa, aka uh, Ryokyo. Uh, can you give a give us like a basic introduction of who you are and uh, you know how you got interested in the history of Ryokyo Kingdom? Yeah, so I'm Rob Kajiwara. I am president of the Peace for Okinawa Coalition. Um, my petition to help save uh, Okinawa um, and to remove the military bases there has over 211,000 signatures on it. Uh, I am Okinawan, or um, as I prefer to say, Luchuan, and I'll explain the difference in a second. Uh, but, and, but yes, uh, so I am an Okinawan uh, activist. I am one of the leaders uh, of the Luchu or Okinawan independence movement to restore our independence. Um, I'm also a historian. Um, I will hopefully finish my dissertation and my, my PhD uh, either later this year or next year. Uh, so I and my PhD, my dissertation is in uh, Luchu or Okinawan history. So uh, a lot of people might not be familiar with Okinawa or Luchu. These might be a uh, uh, strange terms for you. So uh, basically, uh, Luchu is an island chain uh, in the East China Sea. We're close, we're right next to Taiwan and we're south of Japan. So we're located very close to China. Uh, Luchu uh, was an independent country since time immemorial until 1879 when Japan invaded and annexed Luchu against the will of Luchuans. And since then we have continued to try to restore our independence. Uh, so, so the what's difference, sorry for interrupt. So what's the difference between Okinawa and Luchu? Yeah, so, yeah, so Luchu is a huge island chain. There's at least 160 different islands in Luchu, 60 of which are inhabited currently. Okinawa is just one of the many islands in Luchu. Uh, so that's why we say Luchu is actually the more correct term because um, when you say Okinawa, it really only refers to Okinawa Island. It leaves out all the other Luchu islands and uh, that, that is sometimes offensive to the people who live on the other Luchu islands. Uh, so that's why we say Luchu is actually the more um, uh, appropriate term. Uh, and actually throughout history, Luchu was the term that most people used. Okinawa, uh, the term Okinawa itself is actually uh, really a, more of a 20th century construct. It only became in widespread use in the 20th century after Japan and the United States uh, invaded. The term Okinawa is not even a real Okinawan word. 
uh, in the Okinawan language, we pronounce it Uchina. So Uchina Island uh, is, the, is how we uh, refer to Okinawa Island. And uh, so Uchina Island is the largest and most populated island in Luchu, which is why uh, a lot of Westerners tend to be more familiar with that term Okinawa than with the term Luchu. But uh, there are many other islands in Luchu. Uh, uh, you mentioned the native name for Okinawa. So there is a different language being spoken on Okinawa and the whole Luchuin island chain, right? That's different from Japanese. Yeah, it's an entirely different language group. Uh, so Luchu we actually have 10 different Luchuin languages, according to uh, linguist, uh, uh, um, according to language experts, they have identified at least 10 different uh, Luchuin languages. Uh, all of which are mutually unintelligible from each other. So that shows you just how widespread and how uh, uh, really large this island group is. And yes, the Luchuan languages are entirely separate from the Japanese language. Um, Japanese speakers cannot understand the Luchuan languages at all uh, and vice versa. Uh, so the Japan government though refuses to acknowledge uh, the Luchuan languages and instead they consider them to be dialects of Japanese, just like how they considered the Korean language to be a dialect of Japanese when they were occupying Korea. But the United Nations, UNESCO, and most of the rest of the world does acknowledge that the Luchuan language, languages are in fact a totally different language uh, from Japanese. Um, so now most my audience are American and they would know Okinawa because America, uh, U.S. maintain a military base on Okinawa um, and they understand the Okinawa through the lens of U.S.-Japan relations. Now, can you give us a, 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 like a, just the story how Ryukyu or Luchu Okinawa um, you know, how we arrive at the present uh, situation, because I understand uh, Luchu have a, its own long independent history and it was, has part of its own kingdom. How did it become part of Japan? Can we just like go back in time and uh, give the whole, because people don't understand that. And I want people to kind of get that context in the background um, of really what um, Luchu kingdom was. Yeah. So, since time immemorial, Luchuans have lived in Luchu. According to uh, anthropologists and archaeologists, uh, Luchuans have lived in Luchu for at least uh, 32,000 years. So that's quite a long time. And over that period, we've developed our own unique history, culture, languages, and identity. We had two golden ages um, in which uh, we really uh, were at the center of international trade uh, throughout East and Southeast Asia. Um, Luchu was a highly respected uh, nation uh, uh, among, among the family of nations for a long, long time. And then in 1879, uh, after the Meiji Restoration, Japan started to militarize. Um, they started to 
colonized their neighbors, and Luchu was one of that one of those uh, countries that Japan took over. Of course, Japan did the same to Korea, China, the Philippines, and pretty much all of Southeast Asia and, and many Pacific islands too. So Luchu, we were definitely not definitely not alone in that. Um, however, after World War II, all of those other nations were given back their independence except for Luchu. Luchu was the only one that was not given its independence back uh, because the United States decided they wanted to keep Luchu for themselves to use for military bases. So between 1945 and 1972, Luchu was under direct U.S. military occupation. In 1972, uh, the U.S. gave I, I say that in quotations, they, quote, gave Luchu back to Japan. There, there was no democratic process. There was no vote. There was no referendum uh, of the Luchuan people in this, in this uh, decision. The U.S. and Japan simply made an agreement between each other to give uh, Luchu back to Japan. And today, both the United States and Japan continue to occupy Luchu against the will of Luchuans. And according to international law, uh, this occupation by both countries, the U.S. and Japan, is illegal and a violation of Luchu's sovereignty. Because U.S. have its largest military presence in Japan uh, actually stationed on Okinawa, and the reason for that is because the Japanese government didn't want large U.S. military presence on Japanese mainland itself. So they decided, well, we're just going to stick it on Okinawa uh, over the objection of majority population of Okinawa. And that's really, uh, I think, the crux of the issue right now, today. It, it, am I being correct? Yes, that's exactly right. Japan, the Japanese do not want a heavy military presence in Japan. So they simply have dumped most of the military. 70% of Japan's military presence is actually in Okinawa. And Okinawa makes up less than 1% of Japan's total landmass. So you can see it's a huge disparity. On top of that, you know, Okinawa is an island, uh, and a, a big chunk of the island real estate is being taken up by the U.S. Marine Base, as I understand correctly. Yeah, that's right. So the U.S. and Japan militaries take up 15% of Okinawa's land and 30% of Okinawa's arable or best lands. So that's that's a huge chunk of of the very best real estate that's being occupied by the military against the will of the Okinawan people. And, and what, what is this uh, new latest controversy about a new U.S. Marine base in Henoko? Yeah, so Japan and the U.S. decided um, they, want, they were going to build a new military base at a place called Henoko, located on Okinawa Island. Uh, the reason for the base, they say anyway, is because they want to move one of the existing bases called Futenma Air Base. They want to move it to Hinoko. Now, everyone agrees, all three sides agree, uh, that Futenma Air Base needs to close because 
it's uh, it's called the most dangerous military base in the world, and that's the U.S. military's words. Okay, uh, because and it's so dangerous because it's located right in the middle of a major city, Ginawan City, population of around a hundred thousand. It's a very dense city. Uh, Okinawa is a is not a huge island. It's it's um it's not very wide. You could say it's a it's rather skinny. It's a skinny island. So plopping a military base, a huge military base in the middle of a major city is was a terrible idea from the start. And so um, it's it's it causes a ton of problems. It causes environmental problems. It causes noise pollution, which studies have shown it, it's very detrimental to the health of civilians. It causes crime. It causes uh, accidents. The U.S. military uh, has a very freak has very frequent accidents on Okinawa, in part because they have military bases in these dense areas. So there's uh, aircraft crashes, aircraft having to have emergency landings, uh, pieces of, of uh, debris falling off of U.S. military aircraft onto civilians. Uh, in, in some cases, uh, um, windows from U.S. military air aircraft have fallen onto uh, children's schools and daycares and, and things like that. So you can see it's a, it's a huge problem in Okinawa. Yeah, yeah I mean, I all, we often heard news even in U.S. about uh, the Marine Osprey helicopters uh, crash, and most of the crash happened in Okinawa, right? Yeah. Yeah, so Okinawans, we've been fed up with it for a long time. And uh, so for Futema Air Base, everyone agrees that Futema Air Base needs to close. So the, 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 the problem, though, is that Okinawans have de been demanding that Futema Air Base close and there's no replacement base in Okinawa. You can move it. You can move it outside of Okinawa if you want. You can put it in Japan. You can put it in the U.S. But don't. Don't build a replacement base in Okinawa is what we're saying because we already have way too many military bases. Um, but the U.S. and Japan have totally violated the will of the Okinawan people, and they decided they're going to go ahead and build the replacement base at Hinoko, Okinawa. Uh, Hinoko uh, has a coral reef. It's called the second most. Uh, biodiverse reef in the world, only behind the Great Barrier Reef. It has hundreds of rare and endangered species, including the Okinawa dugong. If this base gets built, uh, much of this coral reef is going to be destroyed. So Okinawans, uh, we are strongly against this military base at Hinoko, and we've been uh, peacefully resisting this base uh, for a long time. Can we go back uh, even further in history um, just to talk about Okinawa and Luchu as an independent identity, an independent kingdom and culture um, and, and, and how like, because a lot of people, you know, let alone knowing about Okinawa and Luchu, uh, even less people know about this glorious history of Luchu kingdoms. Can we cover that a little bit? 
Yeah. So Luchu is actually very close geographically to China. Uh, a lot of people today have this idea that Luchu, because it's uh, occupied by Japan, that it must be uh, really close to Japan. When in actuality, it's closer to China than it is to Japan. So throughout, throughout much of history, uh, Luchu has had much closer relations with China than Japan. So Luchu, we've always used our convenient uh, geographical location uh, to conduct a lot of trade and cross-cultural exchange, uh, not only with China and Japan, but with Korea, with the Philippines, with Southeast Asia, with uh, the Pacific, and with many other countries. So this, uh, this culture of trade and uh, international relations helped uh, turn Luchu into a thriving, prosperous kingdom uh, during the uh, 14th century is when uh, the first Luchu Golden Age started. So I'm actually surprised when I started to learning about uh, maritime trade in Asia from 14th to uh, 16th century that how important role that uh, Luchu Kingdom played. Um, it, it actually basically functioned as a, a, a major hub, um, you know, between trade hub between China, Korea, um, Japan, and Southeast Asia because it's central location. It's very centrally located uh, in between in between these nations, and and it, uh, on top of that, it has a very um, special uh, place because it's part of the Chinese uh, tributary system so which means it's allowed to trade with China and and because China has such a huge market um, and and you know many nations do want to trade with China uh, but you know but some of them are not being able to because they're not part of the Chinese tributary system but they could do it through through Luchu so that made Luchu a, a, a major trade hub I was surprised to learn that yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, so, Luchuans uh, were skilled sailors, and they were also willing, willing to uh, sail the seas and to to uh, facilitate this international trade. Um, especially back in those days, sailing was not easy. It it was it, you had to be gone from home for a long time. It was dangerous. Uh, there were pirates, uh, and so. A lot of countries and a lot of city-states at the time, they just did not really want to be the ones facilitating this trade, even though it was very lucrative for everyone. Uh, so Luchuans basically said, well, we'll do it. And so that filled a huge uh, void. Uh, and so this was a win-win situation for, for everyone involved uh, because that trade was so uh, profitable and lucrative for, for all sides. So yes, the trade network did extend throughout Southeast Asia and East Asia, so it covered a huge uh, geographical area, but the ex extended trade network reached even farther. It went as far as Rome. Third uh, century Roman coins have been found in Okinawa, coins with the bust of Emperor Constantine on them. So that shows you just how extensive this China and Luchu Southeast Asia trade network really was. Wow. 
And so Luchu was able, uh, as you said, uh, to trade within the Chinese uh, extended trade network. So a lot of people know about the Silk Road, which is very famous. Uh, not as many people are familiar with China's maritime trade network, which uh, was arguably just as lucrative and just as extensive. But for some reason, it, it just doesn't get quite as much as uh, much attention as the Silk Road. Uh, but it's still very important, especially for East Asian and Southeast Asian countries. And Luchu was really the facilitator in that. Yeah, in fact, the Maritime Silk Road probably carried the most of the bulk of the China trade, just for the simple fact that you can carry more goods on ships than, say, on camel's back. Um, and and for uh, uh, you know, for for example, the. Um, I remember a recent Twitter post that got a lot of circulation is about the origin of the word tea. Um, you know the, you know the tea is either it's either tea or chai in most of the world, and it's tea because um, it, it's it, it basically in a, a southern Chinese language, Minnan language, the 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 word for tea is pronounced te. So whatever. Um, tea that was exported from the province of Fujian uh, left the, the, the port of uh, Amoy or Xiamen went to the rest of the world and the, the, it's known as tea, whereas uh, you know, the word uh, tea was exported from elsewhere, say from, from Guangzhou, the, the Cantonese-speaking area where tea is also chai, or, or over land uh, from Mandarin-speaking area where, where it's also chai. So, so other parts of the world got, half of the world got chai, but what's impressive is uh, half of the world actually uh, known tea as tea. It's, it's the same case in Indonesia where it's known as te. And, uh, and, and as I understand, Luchu Kingdom have a very special tie, especially with uh, the Fujian province in China, right? Yeah, that's correct. So Fuzhou, uh, throughout much of history, was the closest major foreign city to Luchu. It's only 836 kilometers away from uh, Naha, which is the largest city in Luchu. Uh, so even by ancient standards, um, that's only a three to five day voyage, uh, which is, is, is very close uh, for both. For both Fuzhou and Luchu. So, yes, uh, Fuzhou um, is a very special city for Luchuans because uh, we've had close and friendly, peaceful relations with Fuzhou since time immemorial. Uh, of course, we've had friendly relations with, with all of China for a long, long time, but especially the city of Fuzhou. So, how did uh... At one point, oh, uh, you know, the Luchu Kingdom started. Actually, can you talk about how the Luchu Kingdom came about? Let's just bring it all to the way to the to the way beginning here. Yeah. So, as I mentioned, Luchu is a huge uh, collection of islands, 160 different islands, and uh, although we share a similar culture. Um, the islands, every island, and even even different parts 
within the same island have their own unique subcultures. So uh, for a long time, there was no central governing uh, force throughout all of Luchu. This only happened in the 15th century, the early 15th century, when King Shohashi uh, united the Luchu Islands. And uh, he was recognized by the Emperor of China as the rightful king of the Luchu Kingdom. So this is when the Luchu Kingdom officially started. And uh, this is also the start of the first Luchu Golden Age. Uh, Western scholars uh, kind of argue and disagree about when the Luchu Golden Ages actually took place. In my opinion, it actually started uh, at the founding of the Luchu Kingdom by Shohashi. And the center of the Luchu Kingdom is on Okinawa, right? Yeah. So Okinawa has basically always served as the central and um, kind of the central hub for all of Luchu. Like I said, it is the largest and most populated island, and it always has been. And so um, that's why it tends to get the most attention. Uh, during the 14th century, Okinawa Island was actually divided into three different uh, rival states uh, called Chuzan, Nanzan, and Hokusan. So basically in the southern, the middle, and the northern parts of the island were divided into three different kingdoms uh, who, they, they were competitors. They, they were rivals with each other and they were all trying to become the, the basically the ruler of Luchu. And so eventually it was Chuzan, the middle kingdom, that won out and became uh, the ruler of all of Luchu that, uh, under King Shohashi's leadership. And so it was Chuzan that founded the Luchu kingdom. But so how then did the kingdom of Luchu? I'm sorry, that's my puppies. I have three of them. <laughs> they get excited. They want to be part of the podcast. Um, yeah. So how did the kingdom of Luchu enter into official relationship with the Chinese dynasties? Because that, that's also played an important role in the Luchu history, right? Yeah, it's a hugely important role in Luchu history. Uh, we owe so much to China. China uh, really has always treated Luchu uh, very well. They've always treated Luchu with the utmost respect. They've blessed uh, Luchu in so many different ways. They've given us uh, gifts and wealth and technology and other types of assistance. And this, um, so this formal relationship between China and Luchu goes back to 1372. So uh, this actually predates the Luchu kingdom. This goes back to when uh, Luchu was in our three kingdoms period that I was just talking about. So um, starting in 1372, all three kings of, of uh, the Chuzan, Hokuzan, and Nanzan sent envoys to the Ming dynasty, to the Ming court, and asked to become 
tribute states of China. A lot of people have this uh, false uh, idea that China invaded Luchu and uh, and uh, forced Luchu to pay tribute, uh, but that's not true at all. It was actually Luchu who requested to become tribute states of China, and they did this because they knew it was so lucrative. Uh, they knew that being a tribute state of China was a very good thing, uh, and it was not. Um, it was not. It was not giving up of Luchu's sovereignty. Luchu was still independent. Uh, they were simply part of this wider uh, tributary network of of the Chinese. So that term "tribute state" in the English language, uh, I have a lot of problems with it. It's it's really misleading uh, because when people hear that term "tribute state," they think, "Oh no, it's it's colonization, it's imperialism," uh, and for a lot of European countries, yeah, that was true. That was the case, uh, but not uh, with the Chinese tributary network. Uh, so, starting in 1372, Luchu became actually the first official tribute state of China, and then shortly after, Korea followed suit, and many other uh, nations did the same. Um, over time, China had many tribute states. But it was really just Korea and Luchu that remained consistent with this tributary relationship uh, throughout the Ming and Qing dynasties. Yes, um, one thing people don't realize about the Chinese tributary system that it's it's like a highly formalized um, kind of familial relationship where where um, it's more like. The, the relation between, say, Luchu Kingdom or Korea versus the, the Chinese uh, dynasty, it's more like, um, it's more, it's ra rather than, say, vassals and uh, the overlord, it's, it's more like, uh, say, like an older brother and a younger brother type of relationship. It, it's true it's unequal, but at the same time, it's, it's, uh, it's inclusive. Uh, am I getting that kind of just correct? Yeah, that's exactly true. We we do say that, uh, just like you said, it, the relationship between China and Luchu is like older brother, younger brother, or like father and son. Uh, so yes, um, China is, um, you know, China is uh, the greater nation. However, China also had a ton of respect for Luchu. Um, they never once violated Luchu in any way. Uh, they've never invaded Luchu. They've never built a military base in Luchu. They've, they've never harmed us. And in fact, they've done so much good for us. Uh, so because China was the greater nation in this relationship, China always had to give more to Luchu than what Luchu gave them. So yes, Luchu paid tribute to China regularly um, and this was a lot of tribute. They, they gave quite a bit. However, China always gave more to Luchu than what Luchu gave to China in order to show their great wealth and generosity because they were the greater nation in this relationship. It's, it's only natural that they would have to have to give more. And so Luchu had no problem with this arrangement. Luchuans very much... Uh, very much loved this arrangement. Luchuans were 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 more than eager to accept 
China's uh, uh, generosity. And uh, realistically, Luchu is a small nation. We always have been. We're not trying to be as great a nation as China. China is a huge nation, right? Uh, you know, we're China. Luchu has never had any ambitions to be as great a nation as China. It's just not realistic for us. All we want are our rights. We want basic human dignity and respect. And that's what China has always provided us. What people don't realize about the Chinese tributary system is that um, it's, it's a high, highly formalized uh, relationship, including trade relationship. And, and the, from, from the China's perspective, a lot of the motivation <clears throat> from, the, from the Chinese imperial dynasty is that they did it for the point of prestige. It was, it was prestigious to have these smaller kingdoms and come to court and pay tribute. So the, the, motive, the motivation was never about profit, about maintaining a profit from this uh, trade relationship. It was just of uh, these people coming to China and acknowledge the Chinese emperor. So in fact, uh, in the beginning of Ming Dynasty, the Ming Dynasty founder Zhu Yuanzang actually drawn up a list of 14 countries of whom the China will never invade or conquer. And among, among them is Korea and Luchu. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, the Chinese enjoyed the prestige of having Luchu as a tribute state, and Luchuans enjoyed, uh, well, the, the many, many benefits that came with uh, being a Chinese tribute state. Um, one of those benefits is actually protection. So uh, China was actually obligated to protect Luchu from foreign invasion. Um, and unfortunately, China was unable to come to Luchu's aid, not only once, but twice. Um, the first being in 1609. So um, during the 1590s, Japan decided they were going to invade China and Korea. And they asked Luchu to join them. And Luchu, of course, said no, because Luchu's friends with both China and Korea. And, uh, and Luchu has no, uh, no desire to start a war, of course. So uh, Luchu said no. Uh, Japan went ahead and invade and tried to invade China and Korea. Uh, they eventually lost, uh, and so instead they decided to invade Luchu, which they did in 1609. Uh, Luchuans asked China for help, but at the time the Ming Dynasty was in decline, and uh, China was having a lot of problems of their own, and so unfortunately they were not able to come to Luchu's assistance. Uh, Luchuans did put up a good fight. But uh, they were overwhelmed by Japan. Japan, of course, is a much larger country than Luchu. So uh, Luchu lost the invasion. And, and um, from that point forward, Luchu was forced at the point of, so at the, point of the Japanese swords uh, to pay tribute to Japan. So whereas Luchu willingly paid tribute to China uh, because they loved China, <laughs> uh, uh, Luchu was forced to pay tribute to Japan um, against their will. And if they refused, uh, the leaders who refused were executed by the Japanese. Uh, so you can see the relationship between Japan and Luchu has always been very unequal. It's been very one-sided. 
and uh, it's been very harmful for Lichu. And uh, there, there's also a, like a very interesting uh, fact uh, you, you can confirm whether it's true or not. It's, this is what I read that um, after Japan initially um, subjugated Luchu, um, they did not want to lose the trade privileges that Luchu have being a tributary state of China because Luchu can trade with China freely. So what they tried to do is then they tried to disguise that fact that they had uh, <clears throat> militarily subjugated Luchu in order that the to maintain the re the special relationship Luchu have with China. So they try to remain in the background that when the when the Chinese envoys come, they will try to um, uh, seclude themselves so the, the, the Chinese imperial envoys were not aware that the, the, of the Japanese presence on the island. Now, is that true? Uh, yes, there's a lot of truth to that. Um, so between 1609 and 1879, Japan did try to uh, very covertly um, you could say, take advantage of Luchu. So even after the invasion of 1609, Luchu maintained its independence um, and continued to be recognized internationally as an, uh, a thriving and prosperous independent country. Um, Luchu, there was some, you could say, foul play on the part of the Japanese within Luchu. It's not entirely clear uh, what this relationship was between Luchu and Japan uh, during this period. Uh, and scholars are constantly um, arguing about this and we're, we're trying to get uh, to the heart of this matter. Uh, but the reason for, for the lack of clarity here is because of the secretive nature of this relationship. Uh, you were right in saying that um, uh, Japan valued having Luchu as a middleman for trade with China. Because Japan refused to join China's tribute uh, system, they refused to acknowledge the, the Chinese emperor, right? Uh, Japan has their own emperor, so they were very proud of that. Uh, so, but at the same time, Japan still wanted to trade with China. Ch Japan really valued Chinese, um, uh, Chinese luxury items, like porcelain and silk and, and whatnot. And so they saw Luchu as a convenient middleman. So even though Japan was not allowed to trade with China, Luchu was allowed to trade with China. And so um, this actually worked out pretty well in Luchu's favor because during this period, Luchu uh, basically developed a monopoly on the export of Japanese silver. Um, during the 17th and 18th centuries, Japan uh, was in a period of self-imposed isolation. So they did not really want to uh, trade too much with, with foreigners, but Luchu was an exception. Um, and so Luchu was able to export Japanese silver to countries like China. And in exchange, uh, basically Luchu sold Japanese silver at extremely high profits. So it was extremely profitable for Luchu. Uh, and this trade actually helped spark, spark the second Luchu Golden Age, um, starting in the 18th century and lasting up until 
1879. If I may interject for a second, the, the silver trade uh, in large part is also driven by the high demand for silver in China. Because at this time, the Ming, late Ming Dynasty, China was the world's largest economy. And because the previous imperial government have been printing a lot of paper money, because China was the world's first nation to adopt paper currency, uh, and because the imperial government couldn't resist on printing a lot of paper money, it ended up uh, causing hyperinflation. So people went back to metal currency, which is gold and silver, and mostly silver. And because China is such a large economy, there was a large demand for silver, and that the, you know, the supply within China weren't able to keep up. Because while China has a lot of uh, you know, gold, it did not have a lot of silver mines. And it's around the same time the silver mine was discovered in Japan, but Japan was not allowed to trade directly with China because there was a problem with the Japanese piracy all along the Chinese coast and uh, during the Ming Dynasty. Uh, it got so bad that the, the Chinese imperial government just banned trade with Japan totally. So, so, so Japan found this loophole through, uh, through Luchu uh, to <clears throat> ship its silver via Luchu to, to China, which, you know, like, uh, it, it's a very prosperous trade, basically, for all sides uh, involved, because this, there's a large demand for silver in China, and they were willing to pay a very high price for those silver. Sorry for that little, little uh, tangent. Go, no, go ahead. That's good. Yeah, that, that's, that's very interesting. Yeah, so Japan, um, uh, at a certain point uh, before, before uh, basically before Luchu took over Japan's uh, silver export, uh, Japan realized that they were losing a lot of their silver uh, through, through exports, through foreign trade, and there was a huge trade imbalance on Japan, uh, you know, for Japan. And that's why they, Japan basically said, hey, we need to stop exporting our silver. Um, but uh, Luchu, because Luchu was the middleman between China and Japan, uh, Luchu uh, told the Japanese and, and said, hey, um, we really need, you really need to continue to uh, give us your silver so we can export it uh, to China and elsewhere because um, if you don't, then uh, we, we won't be able to get you uh, Chinese porcelain and Chinese silk and other uh, uh, Chinese goods anymore. And so Japan eventually said, well, yeah, you're right. Okay. So, so they basically gave Luchu almost exclusive rights to export Japanese silver. So yes, you're, you're right. It was, it was very, um, it was a very lucrative uh, agreement for, for all three sides, China, Luchu, and Japan. Okay. Then what happened? Okay. So it really uh, started... It really started during the 1850s when uh, American Commodore Matthew C. Perry traveled to Asia. He, he went to Luchu, he went to Japan, he went elsewhere. And um, he basically forced the Japanese to end their period of isolation and to open up and to sign, um, sign treaties with, with the United States. And so this really shocked Japan. Uh, because this foreign power with uh, industrialized 
uh, ships and industrialized uh, military uh, uh, suddenly forced Japan to to uh, to to end their isolation and and the Japanese obviously saw this as a threat to Japan and it was a threat and the Japanese internally went back and forth on well what should we do I mean should we should we industrialize should we become like the West or should we continue you know to do our own thing and eventually uh, the decision to industrialize one and that's where the Meiji restoration came in and with the decision to become like the West also came the decision to invade other countries to to acquire colonies like the West and so yeah, uh, was, Japan really took this uh, westernization uh, too hard because the, the, at the time they uh, there was a theory that basically the world is like a jungle. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. To enable to survive and to thrive, we have to be like the Western imperialist power. You know, they all have, they all got rich through overseas colonies. So the Japan must acquire its own overseas colonies. So the, the closest neighbor just happened to be Korea and Luchu Kingdom. That's right. And so Japan used their new uh, westernized military to invade both Korea and Luchu. And um, so between Korea and Luchu, our histories are very similar, right? Because we're both uh, smaller countries wedged in between two larger countries, China and Japan. And, uh, you know, for Korea, they were able to eventually uh, reestablish their independence and kick the Japanese out. And uh, unfortunately, Luchi, we have not yet been able to do that, or, although we are continuing to try. Uh, one thing I want to go back to is uh, even at the time of Commodore Perry's visit to East Asia, including Japan and Luchu, uh, even back then there was a plan for U.S. to establish its forward base in East Asia and possibly on Luchu. And I remember on twice occasions, uh, the U.S. representative tried to storm the palace in on Okinawa, right, to demand audience with the king. Uh, did I remember that correctly? Yes, that's right. Um, Luchuans did not particularly like Western visitors to Luchu because we, we they were just not familiar with them, right? Uh, whereas we had... Uh, long established relations with China, with Korea, with Southeast Asia. Um, we we had no idea who these Europeans or Americans were. They just suddenly showed up one day. And so when Europeans or Americans came to Luchu and they demanded to see the king or they or the queen or or, or other officials, uh, Luchuans did not like that too much. Luchuans did not uh, trust these visitors much, and so Luchuans were polite. There was no violence, there was no uh, uh, warfare at the time, but um, they definitely tried to uh, sidestep the issue and, and basically hide, hide the king, hide the queen, hide, hide uh, the really important uh, officials of Luchu from the Westerners and to 
try to encourage the Westerners to leave as soon as possible. <laughs> so they play hide and seek with Commodore Perry. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah. And and the, I like to like for my American audience, uh, the side note is that the reason why the America did not. Uh, uh, continue with their plan for establishing their forward uh, Asian base in Luchu um, or follow up on their opening of Japan after 1854 is, of course, American Civil War that distracted U.S. <laughs> temporarily from its interest in, in East Asia. And of course, that that gives Japan the chance uh, you know, to to do its own expansion, and this actually led to war between China and Japan when uh, Japan first um, it tried to invade Korea. Uh, well, not the first time, but again, tried to invade Korea. That led to the the Sino the first uh, the first Sino-Japanese War. Uh, basically erupted because Japan was trying to expand uh, its overseas empires. And I remember at the time, a lot of... Uh, um, so so let's talk about that. Because the, 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 the Luchu kingdom existed as an independent entity um, up to this time, even though it was forced to pay tribute to Japan. Um, so how how did... Uh, you know, Japan then abolished the, the Ryukyu kingdom and established the prefecture of Okinawa. Yeah, so um, similar to what they did to Korea, right? Japan just marched in with their new modern Western military and basically said, well, we're annexing Luchu. And so Luchuans, um, of course, did asked China for help, but China, again, the, the Qing dynasty at the time was in decline. China was having a ton of, of problems of their own, uh, and China was just not able to come to Lu Xu's assistance, not in a military way anyway. China did try to negotiate um, on behalf of Lu Xu, but the negotiations ultimately failed because uh, both China and Lu Xu were just not in a strong position at the time uh, to fight And off. this happened around 1870s, right? Yeah, so 1879 was the official date of the annexation. Okay. Uh, so, Go ahead, the, sorry. So, whereas uh, China did come to Korea's assistance, right? But uh, they were unable to come to, to Luchu's assistance because uh, whereas Korea is attached to, to China via, you know, land, via the mainland, uh, Luchu is not attached to China. It's, it's uh, you know, it, there's, there's the East China Sea in between Luchu and China. And the Chinese Navy was simply not strong enough to match the Japanese Navy. And so that's why uh, China was able to help Korea even though it ultimately failed and Korea was, well, Korea and China were both eventually invaded by Japan. Uh, but that's why China was not able to come to Lu Xu's military assistance. Yeah, at late 19th century, China was experiencing a serious problems. There was, first was the first and second Opium War, and then in between there was Taiping Rebellion. 
<clears throat> and that's just like eight from 1840s to 1860s. And then after that, there was another large scale rebellion on its northwest frontier. So there was actually an active debate in 1870s on uh, what what do China need? Does it need the land defense or does it need the marine marine time defense? You know, does it does it should should it uh, contribute a limited fund into build a navy or to to uh, shore up its land borders? Because at the time there was a there was a large scale rebellion on on China's northwest frontier. The whole province of Xinjiang was lost to the rebellion, and at the time there was a big debate on the court in the court, and eventually the the the, the court faction that advocated for. Uh, land defense won, so they got the loans to finance an army to take back Xinjiang. And but with the consequence of that is there was no funds to to fund a new navy, and and so that that's unfortunately Kingdom of Luchu bore the consequences. Yeah. So I I just want to add that um, China did. Uh, care about Luchu. China cared about all its tribute states. Um, it's just some some uh, American and Japanese scholars today, they 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 don't understand the history, the language, or the culture of Luchu very well at all. And so they make these uh, flippant comments, saying things like, "Oh, China just didn't care about Luchu. Luchu was 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 just uh, was, was just not important to China, and that's why China uh, did not help Luchu, which is not true at all." China did care about Luchu, and and they did their best to help. It's just at the time they weren't able to to help Luchu militarily because China itself was collapsing and and on the verge of being invaded. Um, and I also remember uh, when later Japan invaded Korea in the 1890s, sparking the first Sino-Japanese War. Um, at the time, many so. This is just a few years after Japan officially annexed the Luchu Kingdom. Uh, uh, quite a few Luchu independent activists and officials actually fled to Fuzhou in China, on Chinese mainland, and 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 they started a like a kind of independence organization there, and they were cheering for for China <laughs> to win the first Sino-Japanese War in 1894. But unfortunately, China lost. Yeah. Yes. A after Japan annexed Luchu in 1879, uh, several, uh, quite a few Luchuan uh, leaders and, and independence um, activists did flee to China. Uh, Luchu has had permanent embassies in both Fuzhou and Beijing uh, for, for many centuries. Um, and so they fled uh, to these two uh, cities where many of them actually lived out the rest of their lives there, uh, hoping and praying that China one day would be able to uh, be strong enough to help Luchu break free from Japanese, uh, from the Japanese invasion. That's an important detail because, um, you know, one of the complaints of the Westerners when they came to China, especially among the British, is that they weren't allowed to have an embassy in Beijing, but you know, but the Kingdom of Luchu were able to maintain 
embassy in both Fuzhou and Beijing because Lu Kingdom of Luchu was part of the Chinese tributary system. So, so they were allowed to maintain their embassies. And, and British have to wage the Opium War being able to, you know, win their rights to do so. Yeah, that's right. And um, in fact, the embassy in Fuzhou, the old Luchu embassy in Fuzhou, is still standing to this day. It's actually in very good condition. Uh, the Chinese government has, has preserved it as a museum in order to honor this historic uh, China-Luchu relationship. So that, that building uh, was actually built in 1474. So uh, wow. you can see it's, yeah, it's, it's many centuries old. Oh, that's on my uh, to-do list when I, after the corona crisis is over, when I go visit China again, that's something I like to see. Yes, I recommend it. Um, so that will bring us to, uh, can we cover what, uh, quickly, what happened after the, the Japanese annexation? As I understood, the, the imperial, the, the, the royal palace in uh, Okinawa, the Shuri Castle was converted into like a Japanese army barrack, right? Yeah, that's right. So um, the 20th century is a very, very sad history um, for Lu Xuans. Uh, so uh, yes, after the annexation, uh, Japan tried to make many changes uh, to Lu Xu. Um, Many of these changes were very harmful to Luchuans. So this actually started the Luchu diaspora, where thousands of Luchuans fled overseas to places like China, uh, to Hawaii, to uh, the United States, and, and elsewhere, uh, South America especially. So this is why there are so many Luchuans living overseas to this day because of this, because of the Japan invasion. Uh, so Japan began their military occupation of Luchu. Uh, and, and it exists to this day. Japan has always built up an inordinate amount of military in Luchu, uh, especially as Japan began to lose the war, World War II. Uh, they really increased their military presence on Okinawa Island, uh, planning to sacrifice Okinawans in order to protect Japan. This is why the Battle of Okinawa was so horrific and why there were so many uh, casualties, especially civilian casualties, because of this. Uh, the Japanese were really horrible to Okinawan civilians. Um, they committed so many war crimes against us, and they've never really been uh, held accountable for this. Uh, mo most of the world is not aware of this. They're aware of Japan's other war crimes, but not other war crimes against Okinawans. It, it really gets overlooked. So during the Battle of Okinawa, um, over a three-month period, between one-fourth to one-third of the Okinawan population was murdered largely by the Japanese. Uh, uh, thousands, actually, were murdered on purpose by Japanese soldiers. Um, they used the battle as uh, cover to commit genocide against Okinawans. Um, they particularly targeted 
Okinawan leaders and basically anyone, any Okinawan who was caught speaking the Okinawan language because the Japanese, uh, they're still very xenophobic to this day. Uh, and so when they would hear Okinawan speaking the, the Okinawan language, they were like, well, we don't know what they're saying. Let's just shoot them. Uh, and uh, they also forced thousands of other Okinawans to commit suicide. This was a very horrific period in, in Okinawan history. Uh, they, they even used Okinawans as human shields. Human shields uh, against the, the American soldiers. So, um, as I mentioned, between one-fourth to one-third of the Okinawan population was, was murdered during a, a period that lasted just around three months. Uh, somewhere between 144,000 to 200,000 Okinawans. Uh, so and this in, is... In addition to the human toll, there was also untold uh, damage to Okinawa's cultural heritage. Uh, the Shiri uh, Castle we mentioned was the royal palace of of uh, Luchu Kingdom, and the Japanese uh, turning into a barrack and dug in underground bunkers, which caused the the whole compound got bombed and uh, basically obliterated by the American bombing. And and in fact, it was rebuilt. I think only in the 1990s, right? Yeah, that's right. So, Shuri Castle, uh, which is which is a World Heritage site, by the way, and many other. Uh, uh, Okinawan uh, world heritage sites and, and uh, sacred and, and historic cultural sites uh, were destroyed during this three-month period by by the fighting between two foreign countries, between Japan and the United States. Luchuans had nothing to do with this war. We, we were innocent bystanders and uh, Japan and the United States decided to hold their last big battle on Okinawa Island, and Okinawans were the ones to pay the price for that. Uh, so I mean, yes, after the, after, after the war, um, Shuri Castle was actually not immediately rebuilt. It, it was it was not considered important actually by either Japan or the United States. Um, so so actually, um, sometime after the war, they actually built university, University of the Rikus, on top of the rubble of Sudi Castle, um, which shows you how little respect they had for, for Sudi Castle. Eventually, uh, the university was moved to its present location, which is around uh, 30 minutes away. And Sudi Castle, as you said, was rebuilt during the 1990s, uh, finally. It is the pride and joy of all of Luchu. It is one of the most uh, sacred and most recognizable sites in Luchu. Um, tragically, it burned down again uh, just um, around October last year, October uh, 2019. It, it tragically caught fire and burned down again, uh, which is, of course, is a very um, it's a very another very hard moment for Luchu and his buds. It of course will be rebuilt. As I recall, that's uh, the Shuri Castle is also um, 
the important site for uh, Luchuan culture activity uh, to present day, right? There's there's a great enactment of the of the many uh, ceremonies, right? That that happens annually before the fire. Yeah, yeah that's right. So Shuti Castle um, is is there are constant cultural and historic um, activities uh, that. That took place at Shooting Castle before the fire. It will continue again um, at some point. Um, but one of those major festivals, the ceremonies, is a yearly reenactment of this uh, tributary relationship between China and Luchu. Uh, so every year in in Naha, um, they hold a reenactment. It's called the, the Shuti Castle Festival, but it's a reenactment of when the Chinese ambassador would arrive in Luchu to pay his respects to the king of Luchu. It's a huge ceremony. It's um, it consists of a, of a parade that runs through downtown Naha, and it it um, climaxes with the the ceremony that takes place in uh, the courtyard of Shuti Castle. There's hundreds of participants and thousands of spectators, including uh, visitors, including tourists, who are just fascinated by this by this reenactment. So you can see that even to this day, Luchuans remember the history, the long history of a friendship and mutual cooperation between China and Luchu. Speaking of which, um, do you have you watched that 1993 NHK? Drama series called the basically the wind of uh, wind wind of Luchu. Um, so, so the I guess in Japanese will be the Kaze no Ryokyo, Dragon Spirit. Yes, but um, Luchuans are not too happy with that drama because uh, they really did not do a good job with that. It was Japanese people trying to make a drama about Lu Chu. And so um, it, there was, they, it was not very accurate historically or culturally um, uh, or linguistically for that matter. Uh, so Lu Chuans were really not too happy. Well, we're really not happy at all with the way uh, Japanese media has portrayed Lu Chu. Uh, so what we're doing is we're calling for the creation of Luchuan media. We're, we're calling for Luchuans to regain control of our own narrative. And so we're actually in the process of working on uh, different film projects and, and film and, and TV and, and music and drama uh, about Luchu, done by Luchuans, created by Luchuans and for Luchuans. And, and for the rest of the world to enjoy as well. But uh, you see, so we, we, we don't want Japanese or Americans to continue to speak for or, or over us. We want Luchuans to speak about Luchu. I remember, so I watched the TV, the, that's why I wanted to, your take on that TV series, uh, because I only saw the beginning of that, that, that drama, which has uh, the Chinese Imperial Envoy arriving on Okinawa. And as, as the two envoys were walking by, they noticed there's some, some Japanese people on the island and they were talking among themselves like, 
why are there Japanese people on Luchu? <laughs> and I thought that was hilarious. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, Japan is notoriously bad at uh, misrepresenting Luchu. In fact, even just last year, for the NHK Taiga drama, um, um, it it wasn't specifically about Luchu, but it 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 kind of it partially was. Um, so the drama last year took place uh, partially on Amami Island, which is um, one of the northernmost Luchu islands. So it is part of Luchu. Um, but um, so again, they they continue to just abuse, <laughs> abuse and, and appropriate Luchu and culture and history. And again, they did a, 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 a bad job of that. And so Luchuans... Quite a few were complaining about it. Quite a few were saying, "Oh, we just can't watch this. It's just so bad. They're they're just desecrating us. They're des desecrating history." And this was just last year. Speaking of uh, film and media representation, I just like to point out that one of the most popular actor in basically in, in, in Chinese film industry and, and media is Takeshi Kenishiro, who a um, lot of people understood in China as, uh, as a, a Taiwanese Japanese actor. But in fact, that he's, uh, I believe his heritage is Luchu, right? He's, he's, a, he's a Luchuan, right? Yeah. Well, his right. father is. Yeah. So he's, he's, he's a Chinese Luchuan. So half Chinese, half Luchuan. Yeah, he's actually well. He's actually not Japanese. I I'm not sure how he personally identifies, but uh, technically he he is Luchuan and not Japanese. Yes, because I thought um, you know because in Chinese media a lot a lot of time you know many people kind of accepted the the Japanese narrative that that oh Okinawa is part of Japan. That you know, sometimes they just that just gloss over, and he became known as a, a Chinese Japanese person. But when I look uh, on his uh, heritage, I'm like, wait a minute, this guy, you know, his father is from from Luchu, like a like a tradition, like a like a native Luchuan family, not not a, a Japanese settlers at all. Yeah, and, yeah, and so Kaneshiro is is a very uh, very common Luchuan last name. So the the name itself. Any Luchu would recognize that name as a authentically and not a Japanese name. For um for for Chinese audience who may be more familiar with him, uh, uh, with the Chinese pronunciation of his name, uh, the the actor we're talking about, of course, is Jin Chenwu. Uh, you know his his uh, the Japanese pronunciation of his name is uh, Takeshi Kanishiro. Um, so so moving on after uh, Battle of Okinawa, uh, basically what happened was that that the whole entire Luchu Island chain basically came under U.S. occupation, right? Yeah, that's right. So I I do have to uh, clarify. Though that during the 1850s, when Commodore Perry uh, visited the islands, even though Luchuans really were not too too thrilled about him and and tried to uh, prevent him from seeing the king and so forth, uh, Luchu did sign treaties with the U.S. 
basically treaties of trade and commerce. Uh, so this this is important because it shows that the U.S. and other countries um, recognize Luchu as a sovereign, independent country. Uh, so Luchu also had treaties with the Netherlands, with Britain, and with other countries. But uh, but yes, Luchu did sign a treaty with the U.S. So uh, after World War II, when the U.S decided to keep the Luchu Islands for themselves, uh, this was actually a violation of America's own treaty with Luchu. Because once you, have, once you sign a treaty with the country, you cannot just invade and occupy that country. It, that is a violation of international law. So um, according to international law, even to this day, Luchu is legally still an independent country. Now, of course, um, in all practical sense, right, de facto, uh, Luchu's de facto independence is 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 law is gone, right? At least not. Uh, we're not. We're not. Te- we're not. Uh, our de facto independence is not currently uh, there, right? Because we are under both U.S. and Japanese control. But international law does side with Luchu. It does, it does mandate that Luchu's independence must be restored. What happened in the uh, 1970s? Like, what was the decision make? What, what, what drove U.S. basically to give, so, <clears throat> quote-unquote, back to Japan, give a Luchu island chain back to Japan? So basically... Uh, so Luchuans were never happy with the U.S. occupation of Luchu. Luchuans never wanted America to stay there. Um, and throughout the entire U.S. occupation, um, Luchuans have always resented the U.S. and have always resisted the U.S. So uh, this sort of came to a high point during the Koza riots. Koza uh, is currently um, part of Okinawa City. It's it's a very large city, uh, basically in the middle of, of Okinawa Island, and um, of course Koza and Okinawa City does have a heavy military presence there as well. So basically, um, throughout the '60s, especially during the late '60s, and uh, early 70s, there was a, a ton of anti-U.S. sentiment. Uh, this was a high point in, in anti-U.S. sentiment in Okinawa. And uh, the Koza riots, well, basically, a bunch of Okinawans uh, were fed up with the U.S. and they rioted against the U.S. And, um, and so at this point, the U.S. realized they have to do something. They can't continue to to maintain the status quo because it's just not uh, it's not tenable. So, what the U.S. should have done is restore Luchu's independence because that's the only right thing to do. It's it's uh, morally the right thing to do, but it's also uh, legally under international law the right thing to do. Of course, they did not do that. Instead, they came up with an agreement between the U.S. and Japan that excluded Luchu entirely. Luchu is not part of this agreement. So you, the U.S. decided to, quote, give Luchu 
to Japan so that between the United States, they could both occupy Luchu and continue to control and maintain a large military presence in Luchu. I just like to add that uh, even the, the legal basis um, for Luchu's independence was actually laid out uh, in the document that Japan signed at the end of World War II Japanese surrender. Japan was supposed to give up claims on all territories it acquired through military means. So that included, you know, uh, Korea, Taiwan, Taiwan, all the islands uh, in, in Southeast Asia. And this would actually imply that the Luchu Island chain was sh should be part of the territory that, that Japan have given up as World War II. Yes, that's exactly right. There's something called the Trust Territories of the Pacific. These were um, Pacific islands that had been taken over by Japan. So after the war, the United Nations made a list of these islands uh, and, and basically began the process of restoring independence uh, to these island nations. Luchu should have been on that list, but they were not because at the time they were under U.S. occupation. So you see both the U.S. and Japan are continuing, they, they just continue to uh, assert the rights, the democratic rights of Luchuans. Now, I should mention that uh, during the 60s and, and uh, 70s, there were some Luchuans who, uh, some Luchuans who, who favored a return to Japan because they thought, well, being part of Japan would be better than being part of the U.S. military because uh, as, as, as a U.S. military colony, Luchu had no rights. They had no democratic rights. It was, it was a military rule. So some Luchuans thought, well, um, it can't get much worse. We might as well, uh, you know, it, it would be better for us to be part of Japan than to continue to be ruled by the U.S. military. Um, but now, now, uh, looking back on it, those same Luchuans are saying, yeah, that was a mistake because um, it's more of the same. Because uh, both Japan and the U.S. don't respect us at all. They continue to violate our rights, our human, basic human rights. Uh, so even though it's been several decades since the U.S. gave uh, Luchu to Japan, and um, pretty much all Luchuans agree, the vast majority of Luchuans anyway, agree that this, uh, this has not been a good thing for Luchu. This has been more of the same. It's been, it's been bad. Not that Luchuans, uh, not that Luchuans, I mean, want to be part of the United States or anything like that. But um, we're saying, you know, rule by by both the U.S. and Japan has been bad. And so this is why uh, myself and and my colleagues and my organization, uh, this is why we're pushing 
we're saying we we have to restore our independence that's really the only way we can survive uh into the 21st and 22nd centuries is by restoring our independence because if we continue to allow the u.s and japan to um just destroy luchu uh eventually we're not going to have anything left you know, there are some people who say, oh, what, what is Okinawa going to do if it's independent nation? It's, it's not, it, it depends on larger S and the, the funds coming from, you know, basically occupation by U.S. and Japanese military. Um, so I just like to point out that the central location of, of the Luchu Islands, you know, in the middle way between Japan, Korea, China, Southeast Asia, uh, it, it means it could actually reprise its historical role as a trade hub. You know, like like right now, there's already um, like Okinawa already function as a, somewhat of a mini trade hub for, uh, you know, for, for air flights be between China, Japan, Korea, etc. I mean, with with evacuation of U.S. from large piece of prime real estate on Okinawa Island, you know, Okinawa people can actually do more with that. Yes, you're exactly right. So there's a huge misconception that Okinawans, the Okinawan economy is dependent on the military. This is simply not true at all. Uh, so as I mentioned, the military takes up 15% of Okinawa's land, 30% of Okinawa's arable land, but it contributes just 5% to Okinawa's economy. So you can see that the military in the military presence in Okinawa is actually running at a huge economic deficit. It's a huge burden on the Okinawan economy. So uh, as I talked about earlier, before 1879, before Japan and the US invaded, Luchu was a prosperous country. It was highly respected. In fact, European visitors to Luchu were astonished at the quality of Luchu civilization. Uh, they, they were amazed because Luchu had virtually no poverty, no crime, no warfare. Everyone was happy and healthy and, and thriving. And they, they went back to Europe and they told stories about this country named Luchu and, and about this, this virtual uh, utopia that Luchuans had. And um, even, even uh, some European leaders like Napoleon, Napoleon Bonaparte, even he was amazed at the quality of Luchu. Uh, so before Japan and the U.S. invaded, um, Luchu was, was, was a wealthy country, and we can be wealthy again. We just need to get Japan and the U.S. out. We need to reassert our democratic right to independence. And um, as you said, um, uh, we're going to use our geographical location to uh, resume our historic trade, our international trade. We, we uh, want to, again, become a, a, a world leader. In trade, um, in trade and diplomacy, and also finance and education, 
as and so we have a bright future uh, as an independent country. So I've actually put together an economic plan uh, to revive Luchu and to once again make Luchu a world uh, economic leader once once we regain our independence. I also um, like to remind people that even up to this day, Okinawa is famed for having um, having a, a, being a land of longevity of, of many people living way past a uh, hundred years of age, um, and just because of the the healthier lifestyle on the island. Yeah, that's right. Um, Luchu, even dating back to ancient times, Luchu was famous for our health, for our uh, longevity. Even even uh, the ancient uh, Qin and Han dynasty emperors were fascinated with this. They actually sent search parties out to Luchu to try to discover or to try to find the, um, the elixir of immortality from Luchu and to bring it back to China so that uh, the emperors could live forever. Uh, that's how famous Luchu was and always has been for our longevity. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, nobody told the emperors that what they actually have to do just to move to Luchu. <laughs> yeah. It's not, yeah, it's so not it's, affordable. Yeah, so a lot of it is lifestyle. Um, uh, Luchuans remain active. Uh, uh, we, 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 we say, it's, just, it's kind of a joke, but also kind of true. We say that the retirement age in Luchu is 97. Uh, because uh, 97 is a very auspicious year for Luchuans. Uh, 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 it's basically the start of the second childhood, as, as we call it. So um, Luchuans uh, will continue to work, uh, particularly as farmers, um, well into their old age. And um, that's a large, large part of how um, Luchuans remain healthy for, for so long. Now, I do have to say, though, that uh, because of the Japanese and U.S. occupation of Luchu, Luchu longevity is starting to, to wane. It's starting to, to uh, get shorter because we don't have access to our lands. We can't grow the foods, that, that the healthy foods that we've eaten for, for hundreds or, or thousands of years anymore. We have to rely on Western-style junk food, on fast food, and things like that. And so the longevity is starting to, to weaken. But once we re return our independence, we can once again uh, uh, grow our own crops and make Luchu uh, once again self-sustainable in, in terms of um, all essential items like food and, and health care and, and water and things like that. And then um, use international trade for all non-essential, for, for not all, but a lot of non-essential items, luxury items. Um, so in the, in the course of this coronavirus pandemic that we're currently in, uh, this is particularly relevant, right? Because um, all of a sudden, the international trade routes have, have been disrupted. All of a sudden, globalization doesn't quite look as, as good as it, as it used to, in the, in the Western sense anyway. And so a lot of Countries all over the world are 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 thinking. Well, we need we need to uh, we need to revamp. We need to rethink um, our economies because in a crisis like this, 
when the trade routes are disrupted, um, um, we have to be self-sustainable. We have to grow our own food and our own energy and whatever other essential um, items we need. And Luchu was self-sustaining self -sustaining, uh, up until Japan invaded. So we can, once again, uh, become self-sustaining. I um, Many of my audience have interest in martial arts, so I guess uh, we have to talk about karate because it originated in Okinawa. Uh, is it possible for you to go into the history of karate a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so karate, uh, the 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 name karate actually is a Japanese word. Um, in the Okinawan language, we actually call it T. Uh, it's just called T, um, which means open hand. So the meaning is still the same as karate, which also in, in Japanese means um, open hand. But um, but you see the 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 word and the pronunciation is is really different. So. Um, so yes, tea is uh, an original, authentic uh, Luchuan form of martial arts. It dates back uh, to ancient times. It has received a lot of influences from Chinese uh, Kung Fu, especially uh, uh, Shaolin style Kung Fu. Um, um, but Luchuans have um, modified it and adapted it to our own unique needs. And so after Japan invaded, um, they basically stole, they stole tea from us. They renamed it karate and they exported it to Japan and then to the rest of the world. Um, that's why a lot of people actually think that karate is Japanese when it's not Japanese at all. It's 100% it's Luchuan. And uh, for people who might not be aware, uh, you know, the, the Shaolin uh, is a, actually a series of temples with its main temple in the north, but there is a southern Shaolin branch that's based in the province of Fujian. And because of the traditional long historical ties between uh, Luchu Kingdom and Fujian province, that the southern style of Shaolin uh, got exported and, 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 and exerted a lot of influence on the formation of karate or tea. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Shaolin Kung Fu and philosophy has, has really been very influential, um, on Luchu, uh, tea. And, um, so much so that one of the major branches of Luchu tea is called Shaolin Lu, which literally means Shaolin, uh, which literally means Lu Chu style Shaolin. Do so you see the influences okay. there? And that's actually, yeah, so that's actually the school that I was taught. Uh, don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not particularly good at, at, at <laughs> but, but yes, I have been uh, taught some, and I continue to to practice. Oh, nice. Nice. Oh, this has been a fascinating, fascinating uh, uh, talk with you on the general history of Luchu Kingdom, its modern development. Um, is there anything else you would like to cover on our show? Um, well, if anyone is interested in more information or, or um, 
in ways you might be able to help uh, help us uh, uh, restore Luchuan rights and independence, you can check out our website, peaceforokinawa.org. And uh, people, please follow Rob on Twitter because he tweets out some very fascinating historical pieces about uh, Okinawa and the Luchu Kingdom. Uh, where can they find you on social media? Yeah, my, my handle is at Rob Kajiwara. That's Rob, uh, K-A-J-I-W-A-R-A. -A -A. Um, also, you know, my contact info is on uh, our website, peaceforokinawa.org. And uh, we really want to make Luchu, uh, um, we want to make Luchu once again a country of peace and prosperity in the Asia Pacific region. It would really help, um, I think, serve as a, a, a mediator between these uh, larger world powers so that hopefully we can avoid another war in the future. Now, I have a question. How strong do you say is uh you know, the, the Okinawan independence movement, both inside Okinawa and abroad? So, um, generally, around one-third of the population or so supports independence. Um, however, uh, a poll that was conducted a couple years ago indicated that more than 50% of the population is not satisfied with the status quo. More than 50% are not satisfied with being, uh, with continuing to be a prefecture of Japan because it just hasn't worked out for us. We, we have, we don't have our rights. So, um, uh, I would say, I would say there is support for, for independence among Luchuans. Uh, one thing to keep in mind, however, is that, uh, Japan, Japan, um, Japan oppresses people who support Luchu independence. Uh, Japan regularly harasses ha harasses us. Uh, they they actually um, they kind of um, they kind of what's the word um, blacklist. They blacklist Luchuans who support independence. So they basically put a mark on your. Uh, government records indicating that they, they call you an activist and that makes it harder for Luchuans to uh, get into schools or apply for jobs or um, access government uh, services and things like that. Uh, so um, also Japanese police, if they consider you an activist, they will, um, they will stalk you. They will harass you. Um, they've, harassed me quite a bit and my colleagues saw as well and so um, you can see they are actively trying to discourage Luchuans from supporting independence so that's why um, actually a lot of Luchuans are afraid to support independence I think I think a lot more uh, Luchuans actually um, secretly or privately support independence but they're just too afraid to uh, admit it because of the oppression from Japan. Yeah, that's the one thing about public opinion. You could you could change in a short amount of time because you know, look at the Scottish uh, National Party. They 
they uh, you know have grown a lot more in in the more recent years. And um, but there is uh, have been a, a long persistent campaign and movement against the U.S. military presence on the island, right? I understand there's a lot of organized protest against the construction of the new U.S. Marine base. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, although support for independence might be kind of mixed, um, around 80% or so of Luchuans strongly agree that the military presence in Luchu is bad. So uh, around 80% of Luchuans um, oppose the, the U.S., uh, the heavy military presence uh, in Okinawa. So um, in my opinion, uh, resisting the U.S. and, and Japanese military is, is actually part of the Okinawan identity. It's, it's, uh, it's really part of who we are. It's, it's very widespread. Even, even people who might not necessarily support independence um, agree, generally agree that, uh, you know, this heavy amount of military presence is ridiculous. It's got to stop. It is, it is prejudice. It is discrimination. And, and also, it literally brings physical harm to many Okinawan civilian population. Because I remember when I first came to the United States in 1990, that's when I started reading about all these uh, rape cases committed by U.S. Marines in Okinawa. And, and, and these U.S. Um, uh, Marine rapists, they were not uh, fall under the jurisdiction uh, you know, they're not subjected to the laws in Okinawa or, or Japan. They they only get prosecuted by U.S. military if they so choose, right? Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, the U.S. military uh, does create, um, they commit a lot of crimes in Lushu. And um, especially when you consider the context that Luchu was um, historically a very peaceful country with very little crime. Um, uh, for for foreigners, for a foreign military to come to Luchu and steal our land and then commit crimes against Luchuans, including raping uh, Luchuan women and girls, young schoolgirls, okay, are raped and, and murdered by U.S. soldiers, and this happens all too often. So this is part of why Luchuans are fed up. And even even when uh, Luchuan men try to protect the women uh, from uh, the U.S. soldiers, the U.S. soldiers in some cases have actually attacked and even killed Luchuan men uh, for, for getting in their way. So you can see that the military presence in Luchu has been extremely harmful for Luchuans. And, um, what's the current situation about uh, prosecution of U.S. soldiers who commit law crimes on Okinawa? Are they still, um, can they now be prosecuted under the Japanese law or they, they're still only uh, subjugated? only answerable to U.S. Uh, you know, US uh, military laws? It's really not clear. Um, Japan 
So as you mentioned previously, yes, you, you were correct in saying that uh, for a long time, um, U.S. soldiers were not subject to Japanese law, which means they could commit crimes and get away with it. And in, in many cases, they did. They were, the U.S. military often did not prosecute them. They simply, they simply uh, took them back to the U.S. They, they took them out of Okinawa and brought them back to the U.S. And in many cases, they were let completely off the hook. Um, so it has improved a little bit recently. Uh, Japan has managed to assert some amount of, of, um, I, of, of law against U.S. military members who commit crimes. However, this is still not, it's not nearly enough. Um, it's a lot of it is really up to uh, the U.S. military still, and they they are really the ones who get to decide. Well, uh, should we allow this soldier to be tried in Japan or not? So, uh, and but um, the credit the credit for improving the situation, even if it's only a slight improvement, the credit really belongs to the Okinawans, who, especially the elderly Okinawans. Who have worked for decades to improve the situation. Um, this 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 did not magically happen on its own. This was not um, a result of U.S. generosity. It, it was not a result of uh, the Japan government intervening, for the most part, anyway. Um, although there are some uh, there are some uh, Japanese lawmakers who have contributed positively to the movement, but. Uh, for the most part, this was a result of the elderly Okinawans who have been working so hard for so many decades to improve the situation in Okinawa. Um, for one last point I want to make is that, you know, there are many people I have seen uh, making the point that U.S. presence in East Asia is benign because, it, you know, U.S. military safeguards uh, the safety and the prosperity of East Asia. Um, this is not the case. This is definitely not the case on Okinawa. Uh, U.S. does not, U.S. military presence does not make people on Okinawa safer in any means. Um, you know, the, 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 the amount of the U.S. military station in Korea, in Okinawa, um, they're, they're, they're not even there to supposedly uh, defend, right, against uh, you know what they call the Chinese aggression, because they they the, the, it's actually official policy to have us uh, to have these military uh, presence there as so-called a tripwire. So so in case um, to maintain a U.S. military presence there, in case there was an attack. Now that's actually a, a, a excuse to for U.S. to enter into war. So actually, they are meant to be targets. The, the, the U.S. military base in both Korea and Okinawa, they're meant to be a sort of a target base. Like in case these, these bases get attacked, then U.S. can can form a more muscular response. And so, so, so in effect, they're not actually making people of Okinawa safe. Yeah, that's right. Uh, 
they're not making us safer. They're actually putting us in harm's way. They make us a target of attack from America's enemies. So again, we have no uh, we have no part in this. Okay, we're a very we're a small and peaceful people. Um, we have no uh, we have no um, issues with China or North Korea, and and, and in fact. As I mentioned earlier, we're actually friends with both China and Korea. We always have been and we always will be. Um, so uh, the U.S. and Japanese military presence in Okinawa is harmful for us. It does make us a target. It, it puts us in danger. Um, I talked earlier about the battle for Okinawa and, and how uh, devastating it was for us. Um, you with modern warfare okay with modern warfare though another war or battle could be so much worse as bad as the battle of okinawa was um if if something were to happen today or in the future it could be so much worse uh one nuclear missile launched against uh, a u.s base in okinawa could easily kill more okinawan civilians than than uh, who were killed during the Battle of Okinawa, we could we could easily be wiped out with one uh, nuclear missile. Um, and you know, people nowadays, all these armchair uh, generals, you know, to talk about limited war in East Asia. That that's just not feasible. We're 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 in a nuclear age now. You know, there's no any kind of a hot military action will lead to a nuclear exchange probably in five to ten minutes. I mean, this is this people people thinking that that the war is still still doable among great powers in 2020. They they're they're either insane or they're liars. You know, they they, they, they do it for other purposes like like getting more defense fundings. Uh, because you know that this this it's not gonna happen. And and I believe it's Einstein who said that he doesn't know how World War Three is going to be conducted, but World War Four will definitely be conducted with rocks and sticks, and and that's that's the truth. And yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, as we say in Okinawa, uh, the the U.S. military presence in Okinawa does not. Uh, they're they're not here to protect us from the invaders. They are the invaders. Uh, Americans like to consider themselves as the heroes, but uh, that's just not how we uh, Okinawans see them. This has been a, a very fascinating talk. Uh, we're going up to a one minute and 50 uh, mark. Uh, is there any other topic that you would like to talk about, Rob? Um. Uh, I mean, I think we covered a lot. Um, um, again, I just want to stress that uh, we we desire peace and friendship with both China and Korea. Uh, we certainly have no issues with them. We want to resume our historic uh, relationship or, or friendship with, with both countries. And, and we just don't see that as possible with uh, the continued U.S. and Japanese military occupation of Wuchu. I mean, basically, right now, uh, U.S. forcibly like tie Okinawa on its war wagon 
and and it's really not uh, uh, it's, it's it's a fact that's not welcomed by the Okinawa people. I mean, and that I I I'm surprised, you know, how little attention media attention this is getting in the Western press. Uh, well, I, I mean, I, maybe I shouldn't be surprised, but it, it's really a, a travesty and shame that this this fact is being kind of while hidden away from the public eyes for so many years. Yeah, if if China were the ones building a military base in Okinawa, the U.S. media would be all over this story. But because it's the U.S. and Japan who are building the base, the U.S. mainstream media virtually ignores it. Yes, because you know it's it's assumed whatever U.S. is doing is a norm, and that that that, that is normal state state of affair. Um, and 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 as we all know, you know most nowadays most of the media pieces are nothing but but the racks for 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 maintenance of the empire and U.S. hegemony. Anyway, um, it, it has been a very fascinating talk. Uh, thank you very much, Rob, for coming to the show to talk to us about the history of Okinawa and uh, and Luchu Islands. Um, we hope to have you back on the show in the future to talk about your activism and and uh, whatever other project you have been involved with. Um, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. To subscribe, search in Google the Silk and Steel podcast. The Patreon link should be the second one from the top. Or you can go to patreon.com in the search box type in Silk. The Silk and Steel podcast should be the first one in the result. I put in a lot of time and effort to put together this podcast. And I do ask you for your support. For $5 a month, you will receive premium patron-only episodes like this that details culture, politics, history of China, its surrounding region, and China's relationship with the world. You will also receive pre-released regular episodes before they have been released to the general public, as well as newsletters detailing everything China-related topics. I hope you enjoy the show, and I hope you subscribe. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Thank you.